If you'd like to grab your Bibles and turn to Acts chapter 12, we'll be reading verses 1 to 24 this morning. If you haven't got a Bible, I'm sure if you raise your hand, someone in the church will be able to provide you one. Ben's at the back with a load of Bibles. So please raise your hand if you'd like to have a church Bible. I'm sure the words would appear on the screen as well. Acts chapter 12 and verse 1. It was about this time that King Herod arrested some who belonged to the church, intending to persecute them. He had James, the brother of John, put to death with the sword. When he saw that this met with approval among the Jews, he proceeded to seize Peter also. This happened during the festival of unleavened bread. After arresting him, he put him in prison, handing him over to be guarded by four squads of four soldiers each. Herod intended to bring him out for public trial after the Passover. So Peter was kept in prison, but the church was earnestly praying to God for him. The night before Herod was to bring him to trial, Peter was sleeping between two soldiers. The angel of the Lord appeared and a light shone in the cell. He struck Peter on the side and woke him up. Quick, get up, he said, and the chains fell off Peter's wrists. Then the angel said to him, put on your clothes and sandals. And Peter did so. Wrap your cloak around you and follow me, the angel told him. Peter followed him out of the prison, but he had no idea what the angel was doing, what was really happening. He thought he was seeing a vision. They passed the first and second guards and came to the iron gate leading to the city. It opened for them by itself, and they went through it. When they had walked the length of one street, suddenly the angel left him. Then Peter came to himself and said, Now I know, without a doubt, that the Lord has sent his angel and rescued me from Herod's clutches, and from everything the Jewish people were hoping would happen. When this had dawned on him, he went to the house of Mary, the mother of John, also called Mark, where many people had gathered and were praying. Peter knocked at the outer entrance, and a servant named Rhoda came to answer the door. When she recognized Peter's voice, she was so overjoyed, she ran back without opening it and exclaimed, Peter is at the door. You're out of your mind, they told her. When she kept insisting it, that it was so, they said, it must be his angel. But Peter kept on knocking, and when they opened the door and saw him, they were astonished. Peter motioned with his hand for them to be quiet and described how the Lord had brought him out of prison. Tell James and the other brothers and sisters about this, he said, and then he left for another place. In the morning, there was no small commotion among the soldiers as to what had become of Peter. After Herod had a thorough search made for him and did not find him, he cross-examined the guards and ordered that they be executed. Then Herod went from Judea to Caesarea and stayed there. He had been quarreling with the people of Tyre and Sidon, and now joined together, they now joined together and sought an audience with him. After securing the support of Blastus, a trusted personal servant of the king, they asked for peace because they depended on the king's country for their food supply. On the day appointed, Herod, wearing his royal robes, sat on his throne and delivered a public address to the people. They shouted, This is the voice of a god, not of a man. Immediately, because Herod did not give praise to God, an angel of the Lord struck him down, and he was eaten by worms and died. But the word of God continued to spread and flourish. Thanks, Paddy. Do you keep that open in front of you? Let's pray together as we come to God's word this morning. 
Our loving Heavenly Father, we thank you that as we've already seen and thought about uh, this morning, you are a king, you are Lord of all. Father, please help us to, to listen to your words uh, as the king of the universe. As we come to them now, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I wonder if you've uh, ever found yourself asking the question, who's in charge? Uh, at a complete loss, uh, wondering what is going on, who is in control, who is in charge here? I've got two small children, and so the question of who's in charge is a pretty kind of regular one that we talk about. Uh, but it's not just a question for determined two-year-olds, is it? Uh, maybe you found yourself asking that question at work. Maybe there's someone who is meant to be in charge, but doesn't really act like it. Or there's someone that isn't in charge, but does act like it. Who's in charge? Uh, maybe that question brings to mind a number of news headlines over the past weeks and months. Whether it's the assassination of the Haitian president, the arrest of Jacob Zuma, or the return of the Taliban... For many, the question, who's in charge, is an incredibly serious one. It's serious because the people that govern us, the people that rule us, who make decisions and call the shots, have a huge impact on our lives, don't they? Their decisions affect everything that we do, from our health to our happiness, from our finances to our freedoms. And so the question of who's in charge is an important one. And so it's a question that the Bible spends a great deal of time answering. You see, whilst human rulers and governments, bosses and people at work clearly play a significant role in our lives, the Bible wants us to be in absolutely no doubt that someone stands above them all. Someone who has true power, true ultimate authority. When you ask the question, who's in charge, the Bible has just one answer. God is. No matter how big or strong or powerful any human ruler or regime might seem, the Bible says the Almighty God, the true king and ruler of the world that he has made. The Bible says God is in charge. And that's made crystal clear for us in Acts chapter 12, isn't it? You see, in Acts 12, Luke, the author of this book, wants us to see who's really in charge. And he does that in this chapter by painting this stark contrast between the ruler of Judea, King Herod, and the ruler of the universe, the Lord God. And so for the rest of our time this morning, we're going to have a look at that contrast. And my hope is that as we do that, we'll be reminded and of who is really in charge. And we'll see what difference that makes to us here in Chessington or to people in Afghanistan. And the first contrast we see is all to do with power, God's power. At the start of chapter 12, as I've already said, we meet King Herod. This Herod is actually the grandson of Herod the Great, the one who was in power when Jesus was born. And in verse 1, it seems that he's carrying on the family tradition of being a pretty nasty piece of work. Look at chapter 12, verse 1 with me. It says, It was about this time that King Herod arrested some who belonged to the church, 
intending to persecute them. He had James, the brother of John, put to death with the sword. When he saw this met with the approval among the Jews, he proceeded to seize Peter also. Straight away we know Herod is not a nice guy. He's persecuting Christians. He's had James killed and he's had Peter arrested. And it seems, doesn't it, that the the only reason he hasn't just done away with Peter as well is that it's a religious holiday and so that's not allowed. But once that bit of red tape is out the way, verse 4 makes it clear that Herod intends Peter to go the same way as his mate James. And so the situation at the start of chapter 12 looks pretty hopeless. It doesn't look great for Peter or the people of God. Herod's power seems irresistible. It seems like he is the one in charge. But the church hasn't quite lost hope yet. So look at verse 5. Peter was kept in prison, but the church was earnestly praying to God for him. The believers know who's really in charge, and they know it's not this guy, Herod. They know that the sovereign Lord, the, the, creators of the, heaven, the creator of the heavens and the earth, as they talk about back in Acts chapter 4, is much mightier, much stronger than Rome's puppet king, Herod. And so just as they did after Peter's first arrest, if you can remember way back to chapter 4, they pray. The believers earnestly pray, and then God wonderfully answers. God answers their earnest prayers through this miraculous prison break. And as we, as we read those verses just now, I wonder whether you noticed how much Luke wants us to see God really is in control of all that is going on. He emphasizes that first by showing us the difficulty of the task. Verse 4 sounds a bit like something out of a Mission Impossible movie, doesn't it? There are four squads of four soldiers guarding Peter 24-7. Prisoners were usually chained to the floor or or to one guard. But in verse 6, Peter gets two, one on either side, and then two more outside the doors. This is maximum security prison. Herod does not want this guy to escape. There's the the difficulty of the task. And then there's the uselessness of Peter. I wonder if you noticed that. He's not really painted out to be some sort of professional scape artist, is he? In fact, he he contributes very little to his own freedom. Verse 6, he's fast asleep when the angel arrives. Verse 7, he needs a bright light and a kick in the ribs to wake him up. Uh, Verse 8, he has to be told, now it's time to get up, Peter, put your clothes on, get moving, get out of the prison cell. And in verse 9, it says that he's in a complete daze throughout the whole thing. He's got no idea what's going on, no idea that what the angel is doing is actually happening. You've got to imagine Peter just being, being held by the hand and walked out of prison by this angel. It's not until verse 11 that he wakes up and realizes what's happened. He sees that the Lord has rescued him from the clutches of Herod. Luke wants us to see this this escape. It has nothing to do with Peter. He's completely passive throughout the whole thing. It's all to do with God's power. Herod has done all that he can to lock Peter away. Extra guards, maximum security. What does God make of all of that? 
He, he sends an angel to bring Peter out of jail like it's a walk in the park. Guards don't pay any attention. Gates just open by themselves. It, it's an amazing, unbelievable rescue. And we can see that in the reactions of the people there that day, can't we? Having come to his senses, Peter runs to the house where he knows his friends will be. At verse 13, they're, they're busy having a prayer meeting about Peter, and there's a loud knock at the door. Rhoda, this servant girl, goes to investigate, and to her amazement, she hears Peter's voice on the other side of the door. She's so excited, she runs back to the guys, forgetting to open the door and let Peter in. She runs back to the prayer meeting, shouting, Peter's here! Peter's at the door! Everyone stops praying. They open their eyes and lift their heads, look at Rhoda, and what do they say? Amazing! What a wonderful answer to prayer. We knew the Lord could do this. We expected this to happen. No. Verse 15, they look at Rhoda and say, you're nuts. You're out of your mind. They've just been praying for Peter's rescue. And here comes Rhoda and tells them, Peter's at the door, and they think she's lost the plot. They can't believe it. It's unbelievable. And it wasn't just the disciples who were confused. It was Herod as well. Look at verse 18. In the morning, there was no small commotion among the soldiers as to what had become of Peter. After Herod had a thorough search made for him and did not find him, he cross-examined the guards and ordered that they be executed. Maximum security prisoners do not escape. Someone has made a mistake thinks Herod. Someone must have made a mistake. And so mighty Herod, with all of his force and power, the, the one who was determined to have Peter done away with, ends up killing his own men because he can't believe what has happened. And so can you see in this kind of dramatic rescue, Luke wants us to be in no doubt who is in charge. Peter is useless. Herod is determined. The believers are doubtful. But God is in control. And that is something that we all need to be reminded of, isn't it? We need to be regularly reminded that no matter how dark things may appear, no matter how strong or, or powerful opposition may seem, God has always been and will always be in charge. And when we remember that, when we know that to be true, well, there will be nothing more obvious or more natural than to cry out to him in prayer. Just like the believers in Acts 12, when we are when we turn on the news or we face hostility at work, we will get on our knees and pray earnestly to the one who is in charge. And of course, we, we won't always do that perfectly. These guys pray. To believe that prayer really makes a difference. You'll try and fix things yourself before turning to the Lord in prayer. But Luke writes this 
amazing rescue into his account to remind us that in the times when everything feels like it's out of our control, when the opposition seems too strong, there is far more going on than what our eyes can see. He wants to remind us that God is in charge, that he rules from heaven, and so we can trust him. We can come to him and talk to him. And we can do that knowing that he, he cares enough to listen and that he is powerful enough to act. In Acts 12, we see God's power. And then secondly, we see God's protection. God's protection. Luke has just told us about this dramatic, miraculous rescue. And whilst that might have left some of us amazed at what's happened, I imagine it's left others of us a bit confused. Having seen God's amazing power, we might have been left with a question. What about James? Yes, God rescued Peter. Yes, he answered the believers' prayers for Peter. But but don't forget, the chapter begins with the the execution of another of Jesus' followers. Verse 2, Herod had James, the son of John, put to death with a sword. If God hears, if God acts, why doesn't he save James? And whenever we come to a question like this, it's really important that we are clear on the things that we can know and the things we can't know. The things the Bible does tell us and the things the Bible simply doesn't tell us. And in Acts chapter 12, it simply doesn't tell us why James died and Peter didn't. In fact, Luke gives us just one sentence on James's death. James, one of the twelve, one of the inner circle, you get one sentence on his death. We're not told any more. We just don't know. But, but if, we, if we zoom out a little bit, then we find that there are some things that we do know that might help us with this sort of question. It's an obvious one, and that is that James didn't die because God was unable or not powerful enough to prevent it from happening. We've already seen that in Peter's rescue. God is powerful. He could have saved James just like Peter, A wrong turn, it it had gone wrong. In fact, the opposite is true. James's death is part of God's plan. It had always been part of God's plan. Right throughout the Gospels, Jesus is crystal clear, isn't he, with his disciples, that the spread of the kingdom would come through the suffering of its people. He was clear that if you follow and proclaim a hated, persecuted, crucified Messiah, well, then you should expect to face the same treatment. And so James, John, Peter, Paul, and the rest... ...their suffering and the suffering of many more that God's kingdom continued to grow. And so when it comes to James' suffering, to his death, we know that that God is powerful. We know that 
he has a plan, and, and this is part of it. But thirdly, we know that this is not the end. In Hebrews 11, that the YPF have been looking in Jesus. People like James. Hebrews chapter 11 verse 35 says this, there were others who were tortured, refusing to be released so that he might gain an even better resurrection. Some faced jeers and flogging and even chains and imprisonment. They were put to death by stoning. They were sawed in two. They were killed by the sword. These were all commended for their faith. Yet none of them received what they had been promised, since God had planned something better for us, so that only together with us would they be made perfect. Do you see what the writer of Hebrews is saying? He's saying that that James was a man who faced death, refusing to be released, so that he might gain an even better life, an even better resurrection. As one commentator puts it, this is key to understanding Acts 12, verse 2. Jesus let James die because he had a better life to give him. He was not being neglected by Jesus. James was, in fact, the first of the twelve to experience what Jesus prayed in John 17. Father, I desire that they also, whom you have given me, may be with me where I am and see my glory that you have given me because you loved me from the foundation of the world. Peter's deliverance from prison, his rescue from prison, was remarkable. But he lived to die another day. James, says this author, experienced the true deliverance, death being swallowed up by the resurrection and the life. And that is what Jesus intends to give each one of us. That's what he endured his father's wrath at the cross for us. He wants us to be with him and enjoy his glory forever. And so the commentator goes on to say there will be a time when Jesus' prayer for us will overrule our prayer for a prolonged life on this earth. And when it does, we will experience a life so far better, richer, fuller, purer, more joyful that we will shake our heads in wonder that we were ever reluctant to leave life on this earth. You see, being connected to Jesus means we will face suffering like Jesus. But it means we will be raised with him. And that is our great hope in the face of persecution, in the face of death. Just like James, Christians today can and will be killed for following Jesus. But because of Jesus, they can be sure, absolutely sure, that he will raise them to eternal life with him. They can be sure of God's protection even in death. James knew it. Peter knew it. And so let's pray that that we, and perhaps more importantly this morning, our brothers and sisters in Afghanistan would know this too. Pray that they would know God's protection and that nothing in life or death can ever separate them from the love of God that is in Christ. We've seen God's power. We've seen God's protection. And then finally, we see 
God's plans. In verse 19, Herod is clearly angry about Peter's escape, and so in some sort of attempt to re-establish his authority, he executes his guards, and then he turns his attention to a bit of international politics. Look at the end of verse 19. Then Herod went from Judea to Caesarea and stayed there. He had been quarreling with the people of Tyre and Sidon. They now joined together and sought an audience with him. Tyre and Sidon were significant, strong cities in themselves. But as these verses make clear, they still depended upon Herod for their food supply. And so they needed him to be on side. They needed to resolve whatever this quarrel was they were having. The way they decide to go about that is to do some major groveling. So verse 21, on the appointed day, Herod, wearing his royal robes, sat on his throne and delivered a public address to the people. They shouted, this is the voice of a god, not man. Desperate to please Herod, desperate to get him back on side, they praise him as a god. And it seems that Herod quite enjoys their praise. You can imagine, can't you? This is, this is more like it, he must have thought. After that debacle with Peter, this is what I want, to be praised, to be loved, to be adored, even worshipped. Give praise to God. An angel of the Lord struck him down, and he was eaten by worms and died. You see, Herod might have been king. He might have been powerful, but he was not God. No matter what these people said, no matter what he might have thought, the truth was Herod is just a man, nothing more. And again, we need to remember that that is true for every single person that sets themselves up as some sort of rival or equal to God. We need to remember Psalm 2, where God looks at the kings of this earth. He sees rulers and regimes gathered together to fight against his son. And when he sees the full might, the full strength of all that humanity can throw at him, what does he do? He laughs. God laughs at how weak and useless and pathetic these kings are. You see, God's plan, his eternal plan is to establish his son as the king of the universe. And any attempt to stop that plan is laughable. Herod tries to stop it. And at the start of chapter 12, it looks like he's making a good effort, doesn't it? He tries to put an end to King Jesus by killing or locking up his people. But in the end, he ends up killing his own soldiers and then is struck down himself and eaten by worms. God has chosen his king and the kingdom of his son will spread no matter what. And so chapter 12 ends with those familiar words in Acts. Verse 24, but the word of God continued to increase and flourish. Herod is silenced, and God's word continues to spread. Jesus' kingdom continues to grow as his gospel is proclaimed. It is unstoppable. 
Nothing can stop God's plan. And so, as we end, these words in chapter 12, they should come as a warning. They should be a warning to anyone who would set themselves up against God. Anyone foolish enough to think they can put a stop to King Jesus. These words are a warning. But they're also a great encouragement, aren't they? They are a great encouragement to those who have been forgiven by King Jesus. Those who have turned from living like Herod, living as though we are God and in charge, who have confessed our sin and rebellion and trusted in King Jesus for forgiveness and life. For those who have done that, these words are hugely reassuring. Because they remind us again, as Luke wants to do over and over again in Acts, that we are on the winning side. And so no matter how things might seem today in the UK, no matter how they might seem in the Middle East, if you belong to Jesus, you are on the winning side. If you belong to Jesus, then you are safe. Luke writes Acts 12 to reassure the weak and the worried Christian that they have nothing to fear. God is in charge. He is powerful. He protects his people in life and in death. And his plans cannot be stopped. And so let's pray that these things would encourage our hearts and the hearts of our brothers and sisters around the world this morning. Let's pray together. Our loving Heavenly Father, we thank and praise you this morning that you are in charge. Father, thank you that your word reminds us again and again that we have nothing to fear if we belong to you. Thank you that we can come to you, that we can pray earnestly to you as the creator, the ruler of the universe, but also as our loving Father who cares for us, who listens to us, and who has the power to protect us. Father, thank you that Jesus has beaten death, and so we need not even fear that this morning. Thank you that you are in charge, and we pray that you would help us to live as though that is true today. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Knowing that that God is in charge means that our prayer, we can pray confidently, and and as we're going to do now, sing confidently that his kingdom would come, that, that his word would continue to spread as we've seen. People would come to trust in Jesus and his kingdom would grow. Uh, let's sing this song and pray that God's kingdom would come. Stand to sing.